0: There were uh, two gr- uh, German soldiers who professed to be Christians during uh, World War II. And uh, they were to be promoted as second lieutenants. But there was one condition. To be promoted, they had to join the officers club. Well, them being Christians, they uh, realized that that would mean dancing. So, and dancing, we all know, leads to immorality. Haha. Uh-huh. <laughs> And so that's what they said, and they said, uh, because of that, no, uh, we're not going to take the promotion. Uh, Later, they were assigned to uh, death camps, and uh, they didn't really directly participate in killing the Jewish people in the slaughter, but they did know that it was going on. And they remained silent, and they didn't say anything. And years later, they were asked, did they have any regrets? And they said, no. Don't have any regrets at all. Um, For them, it's interesting, not conforming to social pressure and refusing to dance was righteousness. That was their idea of righteousness. You know where this is going. But when we see them conforming to mass murder and remaining silent and not saying anything. They were participating in evil deeds while Jews burned in ovens and they didn't have a feeling of unrighteousness whatsoever. So when we set our own minds of what external righteousness is, we are all capable of evil. Oh, scary thing. Uh, Self-righteousness. There's two kinds of righteousness. And uh, that's what we're dealing with today. Uh, We've seen in Philippians, um, so far in this chapter, Paul takes the difference between the marks of a true believer and the ones who are false, even though they recognize uh, some validity to Christianity even, and, and even say they are believers. But they teach it. Uh, something that would be different. It's uh, The the false beliefs in this context here is regarding the Judaizers. And we talked about that last week. That means uh, we're dealing with ceremonials, rituals, festivals, the circumcision, all that goes with the external things. Paul ran into these people everywhere he went. Uh, and of course, if he went into the synagogue, you know, they were still uh, believing that thing as Jewish people, but even ones who were Christians were going back to some of those things because they were told by these false teachers that they had to practice these circumcision rites with their children and uh, do all the rituals. Uh, religion without Jesus Christ. That looks like Christianity is the most damnable kind there is. It sends people to hell in, in deception. And Paul is very aware of that. And he talks about legalism all throughout his letters. Of course, you pick up the book of Galatians and you get a great dose of it. And we're even getting it right here, even in Philippians which is a letter of joy. And and what we based on last week was those first three verses is that we are to have joy in Christ and watch out because there are dogs, the circumcision, the evil workers who want to steal our joy and take away the freedom that we truly have in this beautiful Christ that we have, this fairest Lord Jesus. So the idea was to believe in Jesus, take Him, and then add to the work of what He did on the cross the rituals that the Jewish people always had. Sounds right. Hey, we'll take the cross and we'll take what we did before. And you know what that's saying? The cross is not sufficient. We must add something to it. And this is the setting as we uh, look at our text today. This actually is a small autobiography of Paul. He gives us a glimpse of what he was like before he became a Christian. Uh, He really lets us inside of who he was. We see that quite frequently. Paul lets you see who he is, what he's going to become, and in this venture today, as we look at this, what uh, what he was. Kind of uh, amazing that he had let us in on that, isn't it? He had all the credentials. A religious you could have. I mean, he had everything. If anybody was righteous, it was Saul. His name was Saul before Paul. The problem is he was self-righteous. And he was lost in his sin before he was brought to Christ. He was lost. Now, all of Paul's righteousness that he had was not good enough. We know that. The perfect standard is Jesus Christ Himself. That's the only standard. His whole idea of holiness cannot be met by humankind. And so when Saul was converted to Paul... (laughs) He finally saw the desperate condition he was in. Before, he didn't know he was in a desperate condition. Matter of fact, it was so hidden. He was in a box that he didn't know he was in a box. He was in prison and he didn't know he was in prison. He was dead and yet he thought he was alive. And so he has something that God has to do to wake him up. He would have never discovered Christ on his own and nobody does. He knows these Judaizers are in the same condition that he is in. And so he has to protect these Philippians. He's really concerned about them, so he warns them here in chapter 3. of the danger of legalistic self-righteousness. That self-righteousness, it's a stench. It's a stench before a, a, a holy God, before the throne of God. And so, we realize that God is never going to accept any kind of righteousness of man. Only only through the person of Christ. So what we have here is a great exchange right here in this text in uh, 4 through 9. Paul is going to change and what's, what he's going to do is he's going to trade in. He's going to make a great trade. I mean, it's no contest. Uh, it's, it's, it's a no-brainer. But you have to have that brain regenerated <laughs> to be able to do this. But he traded his righteousness for the righteousness of Christ. And everybody here, that you've trusted in Jesus Christ, that's what's happened. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? That's why Jesus Christ is beautiful. So this this text is giving us quite a look at at Paul. And anybody that believes the way that Paul believes, or Saul believes before uh, Christianity, you know what they are? If they're teaching anything added to the cross of Christ, they're dogs. They are... Evil workers, remember that in verse 2 of last week, they are the false circumcision. And uh, so that's what he's touched on, and now we go in to this uh, explanation of how he was that way. He was confident in the flesh. At the end of verse 3, it says uh, that... Christians, one of their marks is they don't put their confidence in the flesh. They realize there's nothing there to boast about. There's nothing good in them whatsoever. And uh, that's what we all have to come to. Um, If anyone, though, had the right to boast about credentials, if it would be possible at all, it would have been him. There wasn't anybody that really could match him. But the thing is, he would continued that way. He was on the way to destruction it was absolute garbage of where he was at. So now we're going to look at the two kinds of righteousness. And there's only one. That's saving. There's only two kinds of righteousnesses. And one of them is false and one of them is true. Uh, hey, why don't we get a chance here to uh, to stretch out and uh, stand up for a moment. We've been worshiping here for almost an hour. Up and down, up and down, all right? But chapter 3, starting at verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Father, as we look at this text today, give us insight and give us new, fresh meaning to what this passage means to our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we've probably all read this text many, many times as uh, as being Christians. That every time you look at a text, it should speak fresh each time as we invite the Holy Spirit to come in and teach us, right? We have the Word of God and the Spirit of God. What else do we need? Isn't that great? Well, confidence in the flesh, that's what Paul... Paul was into after mentioning that a Christian is not to have confidence in the flesh. He talks about what he was before that he had confidence in the flesh, and if it was possible, early I mean, early to him it wasn't just possible. He was, he was absolutely confident. He was, uh, he was qualified for the kingdom of God, and we just see his credentials written here. He was above all. I mean, as far as the outward standard goes, there's definitely nobody above him as far as he's concerned. It's presented as a, a business transaction. As we uh, look at it this morning, we'll see the profit column and we'll see the lost column. And uh, we'll see as we get to the end of that, uh, those good-looking profits that uh, Paul had uh, are worth nothing. As he discovered that, he found good news, though. Uh, verse, verse 4 says, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh... If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day. And he's already mentioned circumcision, the false circumcision. That's what the Judaizers are. But there is the true circumcision of what's happening in our heart. And uh, all that stuff has been cut away. Christ has come in and made us new. We have been cleansed, circumcised, however terminology you want to use, but that's the true circumcision. And they were resting upon uh, an outward circumcision. Those babies have to be circumcise the eighth day and if they're not well then uh they probably uh well they could have a problem as far as being saved you know as a jew i mean that is uh one of the most important things so he starts off with that because that's what he's already mentioned and so with respect to the circumcision you know what he is he's an eighth dayer you guys an eighth -er? (laughs) dayer it's a good practice physically i mean it's uh you know it's still practiced today there are um, humbleness reasons involved but um, they took this much further than what it was ever meant to be so just like the law stated that's what happened uh, whenever he was baby Saul can you imagine that and uh, so he really hits the Judaizers with a big issue here uh, goes right forward it's like saying hey I'm no Ishmaelite <laughs> you know I, I didn't wait till 13 years to be circumcised I was done right from the very outset Kind of reminds you of baptism, doesn't it? You have baby baptism. Or you have somebody who's 13 years old. And it still doesn't matter. If they're, if they're not believers, if they're not trusting in Jesus Christ, they're, they're outside. But um, here we go. We, we see uh, He brings up the infancy part. And He's also saying, I wasn't a proselyte. It wasn't that I came in much later and, and uh, then I was taken into Judaism. No, He's a true-blooded Jew. That's what he starts with. Now, there's a lot of true-blooded Jews, so that doesn't really separate him too much from these guys. But he starts off with that. Uh, all other boys, Jewish boys, were circumcised. And he had the purity of, of the Jewish pedigree right from the very outset. mean, he, he goes with that. Uh, just a quick reminder, we can turn back to Genesis 17 if we like and just look at where this started. God starts it with uh, Abraham. And in verse 12 of chapter 17... And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant is born in the house. Anyway. Uh, There, he's he's talking about circumcision. You go into the law. You can go into Genesis 21 also, but you go to Leviticus. We're not going to go through all those. But 21.4 says, Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. So Abraham was circumcised and all those male adults... And then, of course, babies would come along eighth day. so even his own son, Isaac, was circumcised. And it continued all the way on through, and of course, it still happens today. Now, we go to the New Testament, and we see um, Paul writing in Romans, for instance, in chapter 2, verse 29, and he uh, gives us what the meaning of circumcision is. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So there we have uh, Paul saying it's an inward spiritual thing. We can go to chapter 4, verse 12. Paul has been using Abraham there, and he says in verse 12, "...and the father of circumcision," the one who started it all, "...those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised." Abraham, he's making a point right there, that Abraham had faith even before he had circumcision. Do we get the idea? He was a believer before it even happened. It wasn't because he was circumcised and then God said, oh, he, uh, he obeyed the commandment, now I'm going to make him a believer. Uh, um, Paul says, see, he was, he was trusting God even before that. He just showed that here's an act of obedience that believers do. And so he was circumcised. So... Uh, I don't care whether you're talking about Jewish symbols and Jewish sacraments and Jewish ordinances, uh, ceremonies, whether you're talking about Roman Catholic ones or the rituals and the rites and whether you're talking about Protestant baptism or Protestant sacraments, whether you're even practicing uh, the, the, the Lord's table or some other ritual or the, the prayer beads, the formula prayers, the ceremonial rites and rituals do not bring salvation, do they? We know that. It's made clear. It's brought all the way through the New Testament. Shows what the new covenant is, uh, but Paul said, and he knows that. He writes that later. He wrote Romans, right? <laughs> but he shows here that that ritual circumcision, he did it. Big deal. Yeah, that's what he did. Uh, what's the next one here in Philippians? It's dealing with the nation of Israel. Okay, well he's circumcised and he was of uh, Israel, nation of Israel, with all the. Uh, Advantages, benefits that they have. Circumcised age today to of the nation of Israel. Paul saying, hey, I'm pure. In terms of my heritage that comes from the Jewish people, as far as my parents, uh, I was a descent that came from God's chosen people. And that is right. Well, we look at Romans 9, and as he supports the fact that uh, he's, uh, he definitely is concerned about. Israel And what is God going to do with the Israelites? And he says in Romans 9, verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promise. They had all those. Those were definitely spiritual advantages at that time. Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ? According to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. So uh, the Messiah even came from them. He said, Look at this. This is what God had in mind. This is what He had planned. I came from these people. Salvation, we know, is not by race. But He did choose that nation to work through. The only have I chosen. Um, he says, I think, in Amos 3 2. He chose that nation to work through through and and bring that ultimate promise of the Messiah there, so um, there 's no religious value gained to who you were born to. A lot of people will talk about the families they they come from or what nation you know so um, born into a Christian nation, <laughs> if there 's such a thing right, does not make one a Christian, although Muslims and other religions would look at the United States and say, well, that's a Christian nation, all those people are Christians, and it doesn't matter whether they go to church or not, they're all Christians. And, and you know how they look upon the nation uh, that we're in, America. <laughs> uh, they despise us, they despise Christians. Um, so we're not that because of our parents, because of the nation that we're born in, because of the household we're born in. Um, no standing. No standing with God just because of those things. The fact that you were born into a Christian family doesn't even grant you the right to stand before God just because of that. And, and now he, he gets even sharper with this. He says not only of the nation of Israel, but from the tribe of Benjamin. Oh, now he's really stacking this argument up. He would say if, if you want to see somebody really this way, this righteous, this is an elite tribe. The Benjamin was a favorite child of the Israelites, or of, of, of the people. They saw that there was... Matter of fact, he was the only child born to Jacob actually in the Promised Land. Now that's fascinating. Uh, the tribe of Benjamin had the best soldiers. The tribe of Benjamin had really good kings that came from there. Jerusalem was in the territory of Benjamin. The two two tribes of Benjamin and Judah were the ones who remained faithful while the ten northern tribes left uh, really the the true uh, belief. Um, And they stayed there. And then we know later they were punished too because of their idolatry. But anyway, they formed the southern kingdom. So this was a very noble group. And Paul traced back to that tribe and he said, that's where I came from. And if we look in Hosea, chapter 5, verse 8. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Hosea 5, 8. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound an alarm at Beth-Avon, behind you, Benjamin. Everybody's going to to be behind Benjamin. Benjamin's going to lead them in with this, this march. So they were a very respected, noble tribe. Paul was from there. And then he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Well, he's already said that he's from uh, the nation of Israel. We think, well, okay, that's Hebrew. But at his time, a lot of Jews had kind of lost the heritage and the traditions of the Jews. They were scattered out all over the Gentile world. They'd even taken on names uh, that were... Gentile that were Greek um, so they were kind of almost a mixture in some ways in and, and that way but he says no I'm a Hebrew child I was born of Hebrew parents I maintained my tradition uh, even though I wasn't in the land of Israel I still kept that tradition up he kept his heritage he spoke in Hebrew now he knew other languages but he spoke in Hebrew even when he lived in a pagan city Go to Acts 21, Acts 21, verse 40. Well, it came to an advantage whenever he would go into different cities. If they had a synagogue, he could speak Hebrew. Uh, use other languages uh, when he went to other, other places. 21, 40, verse 39, Paul said. There's a mob here. Paul said, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And when given him permission, Paul, standing in the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, and when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, so he spoke in Hebrew. And They would understand him. They'd see where he's coming from. We go to chapter 22, verse 3. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. As he goes on to say, I persecuted the way. And that's another one of his potentials that he'll use in a moment here. Um, Chapter 26, verse 4 and 5. So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up. Everybody knows from my youth up what I was like. I'm an open book here. Which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. So we know he came from a different land, a different city, but he also spent time in Jerusalem where he's educated. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they're willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. He says everybody knows it. it's up front. Everybody knew about this Saul. They knew he was a Hebrew of Hebrew. He spoke Hebrew. Uh, he was a Pharisee, right? And that leads us right on in to that idea of uh, Pharisee. Just because you're loyal to your parents, whether you're one would be a Protestant, Catholic, Lutheran, uh, because your parents are, are that way—Presbyterian, Baptist—the kind of loyalty that you can have to, uh, to a tradition is as worthless. As far as the means of salvation is concerned, you can't count on that whatsoever. And that just blows people's minds when you hear that. Even today it does. Well, I'm this. Are you a Christian? Uh, well, I'm this. I'm, I'm this with it. you know, I go to this church. Are you a Christian? Well, yeah, yeah, well, you are. Well, what do you believe? I believe what my church believes. Well, what do they believe? I believe what my pastor believes. What does he believe? That's what my church believes. (laughs) Tradition, language, he even had that. Man, I'll tell you, he looked good. But he builds on it even more and he says a Pharisee, right? He's a Pharisee. Now, when you said that at that time, even though Jesus knew full well that was hypocrisy, at that time, that was a very commendable position to have. There were only about 6,000 during the time of Christ. Pharisees out of all the people there. You couldn't get any higher than being a Pharisee. I mean, that's it. You know, Sometimes you'll say, I want the best. I, I want to talk to the very one in the highest office. If you're a Pharisee, as far as religion and the law is concerned, that's it. Um, we take them as hypocrites because of the way that Jesus uh, approached them. But at one time, they actually started out in a good way. They were fundamental separatists. And, and that's kind of in a good way. That they affirmed the Word of God. And that was all the Old Testament. Now we know the Sadducees came along and they only wanted to believe in the first five books. But these guys believed the whole thing. They guarded it. They studied it. They proclaimed it. And so they had the truth. They wanted to make sure it was known. But of course, as like anything else starts, whether it be a church, a denomination... Seminaries? Colleges? What happens? They start up here with all the right intentions, but what can happen? They degenerate, right? They degenerate just like uh, all the creation is and mankind is. Degeneration. They made their own laws from the law. And Paul not only was one of these Pharisees who abided by all that, but his father did too, and probably his grandfather, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and who knows how far that could go back, but it was definitely quite the line that he came from. He was as religious as one could be. Uh, turn back to your Acts twenty two three. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, might have been considered to be the teacher of all teachers there in Jerusalem at a, a seminary. <laughs> um uh, a teaching institution. I mean, that was to get to the highest highest degree. It, it can be a good thing to learn these things. They're not talking that. But we're just saying, hey, this is where he came from. He knew his stuff. Strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. Uh, we saw that. We, we saw in 26, verse 4 and 5. Uh, what did he say there? Um, So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. There's his education. Okay, he, he had this. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they're willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee, according to the strictest sect of our religion. I lived as a Pharisee. I was a Pharisee. That's what I was. So he was very, very uh, traditional in that sense. Um, Galatians one fourteen, And I was advancing in Judaism. I was advancing. Beyond many of my contemporaries. Among my countrymen. Being more extremely jealous for my ancestral traditions. Wow. He exceeded most of his contemporaries here. Wow, he was there, wasn't he? As far as he was concerned. And then he says uh, another potential is as to zeal. As to this religious zeal. He was so zealous as a Jew. He was responsible for persecuting Christians and that was a good thing. He wanted people to know that's what he did. He felt really good about it. As far as he is concerned, that was God's plan for him to do that. He wanted to destroy Christianity. Think about this. If there was any person in Judaism at that time that wanted to destroy Christianity, it was him. There are many others, but he's at the top. He is wanting to go out and find out who these Christians are and get rid of them. Whatever it takes. And he went from house to house. We know that. He knew, he knew full well what Christianity was about. It's not that Paul was stupid or Saul about Christianity. He knew what it was about. He knew about the death, burial, resurrection that they preached. He knew about that. I mean, did he really? had he seen the resurrection? No. Later on, he sees the resurrected Lord, but he knew that they preached grace through faith. Oh, can you imagine how angry that must have made him? You know how it does today when people find out, um, I want to tell you, 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 as religious as you are, you're standing before Holy God. And if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, if you don't trust in the fact that He alone brings you to heaven, you are condemned in your sins. If you talk about God electing, people get really angry. And man, even Christians do. It can really make you angry. If you remember, it might have happened to you too. Very angry at uh, that kind of theology. Paul knew about this kind of thinking and he wanted to destroy it. Wanted to stop it before it got any bigger. He was he was violent. Uh, if we look in 1 Timothy 1:13 1, that's what he called himself. He he was violent. Can you imagine Paul violent? Hard to hard to imagine. He's the one that wrote the love chapter, isn't he? 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, one thirteen. What a change that to having him! Even though I was formerly a blasphemer—that's against God. Actually, even though he was doing this for God, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. That's what his lifestyle was. That's who he was. Oh, for the sake of his religiosity. First Corinthians fifteen nine. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He loved Judaism so much that he hated anything that would come up against it, that would try to take its place. Listen, he was a monotheist. Are you guys monotheists? Yeah? You believe in one God? Mono, one theist. God, the one God. The Lord our God is one God. Deuteronomy, right? The Shema. We also say we believe in one God. But, we also believe in a triune God as presented in the New Testament. But not only in the New Testament, we find the triune God in the Old Testament. Actually, after the fact of the matter, we can look back at him, we can find him in Genesis chapter 1. And right on through all of Scripture. Maybe not so clear there to people, but uh, when you become a Christian, you can realize uh, we're the only one that really has the true trinity, right? Uh, the Jews don't like the idea of there being three gods, and that's probably what Paul thought we were about to, right? As to works, he was blameless. I mean, nobody... Could get him on anything. He had a clean slate outwardly. There wasn't anything anybody could hang on him. You know, kind of funny if you're a politician in America today, you can have a pretty clean slate. But they're going to find the, the, uh, who you're running against is going to find something up against you. They might even dig out in the past and they might even bring some truths out. <laughs> or maybe they'll just make them up. But the thing is, They'll find something and they will bring it up and make it look really bad, right? But I don't think you could do this with Paul. You'd have to be making it up outwardly. He lived spotlessly. He lived by God's law and nobody could find anything on him. And you remember the rich young ruler? Uh this kind of sums up. Go, go to Matthew 19. Let's let's uh, briefly read this text. We've probably heard it many times, but let's be reminded of it here starting in verse 16. Uh, this is a summation of what we just read in verses 3 through 6. Someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Makes you wonder here. You know, we know this story. Wouldn't it have been interesting if, if um, Saul, before he was Paul, uh, would have been in Jerusalem at the time when Jesus was walking around? Wouldn't have been interesting had he talked to him at that time. We know he does talk to him later. Jesus talks to him, uh, you know, after uh, Jesus had rose. But uh, that would have been interesting. He could have almost been like a rich young ruler in this sense. Uh, and he said to him, "Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments." Then he said, which ones? Jesus said, you should not commit murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, you know. know. And the young man said to him, all these things I've kept. Well, apparently he wasn't around when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And if he had ever heard the sermon, he just didn't get it. Because he says, well, here's uh, here's what adultery is. If you just think upon it. He committed adultery. Now, Jesus defined what they thought they believed. And He set them all out and laid them out on the floor. The young man said to Him, all these things I've kept and I'm still lacking. (laughs) You know, what is it? What What are you saying? Jesus said to him, well, if you wish to be complete, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow Me. But when the young man heard this statement, that bothered him he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Whatever it was that was holding him back from Christ, he couldn't give up. Anything else he'd be willing, but uh, hey, listen, um, yeah, did he, he, man, he had credentials. <laughs> he really had it. Uh, outwardly, he looked good too. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Matter of fact, anybody. (laughs) Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, well then, who can be saved? They got it. They realized it. And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people this is impossible. This is absolute sovereign grace preached right here, isn't it? Right here. But with God, all things are possible. That's the only way we can have salvation. With men, we can't get to him through our all of these credentials that Paul has just brought forth and uh, well, there were some personal achievements that Paul had. And there were things that he was just born into. He couldn't help. You know, I was born into this and I had this and this. But then he he was the strictest of orthodoxy. He went and studied. He was zealous. And he had all these righteous works. Um, Boy, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, this is a text that is really helpful for the text that we're in. I'm not expecting you to really have difficulty getting the gist of this message this morning. I, I know you already have it. And this is nothing new to you. And many of you did come out of uh, false religions. And it was very, uh very hard, difficult thing to do. I left all that. So you can say, I understand this. This is nothing new. But uh, I, uh, Phil Johnson gave a message on the same text that we're in at uh, the Shepherds... Uh, I don't know if it's Shepherds Conference. It was a conference last year. And as he did this, he based a lot of that text out of this text in Deuteronomy 9. I think it really says it. Verse 4, "...do not say in your heart..." He's talking to Israel. The Lord your "...when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this... This good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. Does that ever say it? I mean, that sums up just what Paul has written here in our Philippian text. No, then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you all this. It's not because of your righteousness that God is choosing you. It's not because of your great intellect that you can make a decision for Christ. To follow Christ on your own. It's not because of that that He chose you. Uh, you know, you know, they were almost taking credit as they went into the land that they did uh, this. They could have done that. But God was gracious. That's the idea of this text. It's not because of your righteousness. <laughs> it never is. That sums it all up for us. Not because of your righteousness. So, to take all of these benefits that... Paul is showing here, you would think, well, that's in the prophet column. Man, I can't even begin to attain to that. Aren't you glad that's not the standard anyway? If that's a standard, we're all in trouble, folks. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, uh that means the Pharisees aren't in because they're Pharisees, right? They they have to exceed the Pharisees. If he's talking to a common person, they're going, What? What does that leave me? Well, that's the position where we all need to see where we're at. God's system of salvation does not work like that, adding up the column. And then adding up the other column over here, that's the, the debits. You have a credit and the debit side and your credits outweigh the debits. <laughs> Close. But I'm going in. <laughs> that's what people are doing. You know, they're saying, well, I, you know, every time you talk to somebody who is a non-believer and they don't believe in God or anything or whatever, and you start, or oh, they, they're a Christian or they profess to be a Christian and you say, what, uh, what gives you the right to go before a holy God? Well, you know what they say, Right? I've been pretty good, right? Pretty good. Based on what? Well, I've done this and this and this and this. I know I've done these things, but somehow they get it to where they have more on the profit side. What's well, the standard? Well, their standard is themselves. Or somebody else. It's easy to compare to your neighbor. You know That guy over there, man, he's lost. <laughs> uh, listen, until God's grace is given to us, When when we're regenerated, we didn't get it either. We we just don't get it. Because naturally, the system of salvation is I've got to do something. The merit system. Sounds like the state, doesn't it? Those merit tests. Okay. It's always believed to be the right path. You take... Take this path. That's got to be right. Right? This is where we go into part two of our Philippians. Better get to it because this is the best part. This is where the good news is at. It's not man's righteousness. We know that. Everything we're saying here this morning is old hats. I've heard this a thousand times. Dennis, can't you say something new? No. <laughs> this is where we're at, right? But it's a great reminder because sometimes we can look at people and say, yeah, but that guy is, you know, he really looks good. The best part of the whole message right here is starting at verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. We sang it this morning. Oh, I hear that song. Uh, 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 uh. What is it? When, when you're looking at the cross, my richest gain... I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast saving the death of Christ my God. The hymn writer there. Is that Isaac Watts, right? Good theology. (laughs) He was. Very good theology. Isaac Watts. Great hymn writer of the past. And he got it. He knew what Paul was talking about in Philippians here. Paul contrasts two kinds of righteousness. And he goes into what true righteousness is. One is very fatal. And it's eternal hell. That's what we just looked at. The distinction between the two ideas of righteousness is so fundamental. It's so important that if you don't grasp this point, you're going to hell. It has to be understood. The whole idea of what the Gospel was bringing forth. And it's found right here, just in these verses. You can just take verse 9. It's there. The Gospel is all throughout Scripture. It is the, the Scripture. It is God. Paul calls the one thing that he was in, though was called the uh, righteousness of, of the law. The righteousness of the law. And, and uh, so he, he followed it. He really thought he... He was okay. But they're different as night and day. They're not even close. But they look so close to the natural eye. One is totally flawed. The righteousness that is the product of our works. Or the perfect righteousness which is the product of what Christ has done. Gain? It's an accounting term. But whatever things were gained to me, you know, this is a whole business transaction that's going on. And so he uses a a term here in the language to mean profit, gain, accounting. And those things I have counted as loss. The gains that I had, those that profits, those profits are loss. Zippo. They have nothing to do with my standing before God. Loss is a term meaning business loss here. Really easy. All games that he had on the list, absolutely you know he's not even going to hang on to one of them I mean zero when Paul put together his ledger, <laughs> and he had that, and I mean everything on that profit side is looking good, and it's like as he in a sense, let's say if he would take that before the court in his defense, and he has the book there, and the prosecutor says, no. I'm going to put that ledger that you just used against you. He saw that his gains were nothing. He had nothing to offer. And that's exactly where God wants people, isn't it? Blessed are the poor in spirit. I am bankrupt before God. I can't bring Him anything. Yeah, that's where He wants. It's the Spirit of God that gives us that kind of attitude. So we have an exchange. He was willing to give everything, wasn't he? It's all loss. I'll take this over here. He was willing to give everything for the treasure that was the treasure like the pearl. Look at Matthew thirteen, forty four and forty five. Matthew thirteen, forty four and forty five. Matthew thirteen is dealing with parables. Dealing with the kingdom of God. And uh, he says some things there that really sound not normal. <laughs> a lot of people get mad at a lot of those parables that he would preach. And verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found... <coughs> And hit again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that hole. He sees that. He's willing to give up whatever it takes to get what he saw and knew to be beautiful. To be the absolute best thing that he could have. He's willing to give up everything else to get what that is. That's, this is the person of Christ. It says... The king of heaven. I mean, this is glory. I mean, he discovers this and he says, That's it. We have that beautiful Christ, don't we? How about the pearl? That was dealing with a treasure. Here's the pearl. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's being convicted in the fact of. I'm going to get the best. And I'm going to give everything I have. Everything I have to get that answer. Boy, that's a gamble, isn't it? (laughs) Not when you know that that is it. Whenever He regenerates us, He's irresistible. He comes in, and we now see that I wouldn't want any of that other stuff that was so dear to me. The person of Jesus Christ is it. He is my portion. He is everything. Ryan, I think I'm getting a little inspired by what you had Wednesday night. Is this sounding kind of close? <laughs> but it's leading right into that. It's amazing how many times you can have text and not even trying to mean to and as they kind of lead and they build up each other on that. It's kind of fascinating. But that's that's the person of Christ. He's something to get excited about. Uh, He found the pearls. Man, what did he do? It was a great value. And he said, boom, that's it. That's who I want right there. That's my life. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, the word knowing here in Philippians is a key word. By knowing Christ, right at the end of verse 7, Verse 8, sorry. More than that, I count all things to be lost. that another counting term. In view of the surpassing value, it just overexceeds. I mean, it's very obvious, of knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Now, here we go. Knowing gnosko—that's experiential knowledge. It's really having the experience. It's saying, "I know by personal involvement with." That's the idea of gnosko. Personal involvement with Christianity is knowing Christ. We're not talking about knowing about Him. We're talking about knowing Him. There's a lot of people that know about Christ. They know about the fact that He died and was buried and rose. and might even say they believe that, but do they know Him? That's a major part. Jesus said in John 10, I know My sheep and they know Me. I have a personal involvement with them and they have a personal involvement with Me. That's called relationship. That is the difference between Christianity and all other religions that all the worlds offer. A vast difference. Do you know of any other religion that has a relationship with their God personally? Can you actually say, I know God. You know what? I know the Creator. I know the Sustainer. I know the Justifying God. I know Him personally. Uh, If you're Muslim... You don't know your Allah. You don't know your God because He is not a personal God. And that's what they will tell you. He does not become personal to them. Nor does Hinduism, Buddhism, or anything else for that matter. There is no personal relationship. Ephesians 1, oh oh, I know, John 17. This is eternal life that they may know Thee. There's Christianity at its heart. And this is what it's all about from here on through eternity. Knowing Him. You say, well, I don't know much of Him, but I, I know Him, but it's, it's very little. Well, that's fine. You have an eternity to know Him. Just when you think you, you start knowing Him, He shows a little bit more. Then He shows a little bit more. You know what the Bible does? It gives us a little bit in Genesis, a little bit more in Exodus and Leviticus. Then you get to the prophets and then just brings out the prophecies of the Messiah, but yet He was still not here. Then He comes on the scene and He really shows who He is. And people still don't know Him as a whole, as the nation. And here He is 2,000 years later. People uh, have been persecuted. People have died for Him because they knew Him and they, they were like Him in a lot of senses. And yet the world does not know Him. But well, we know him. We know who he is. We have a relationship with him. Ephesians 117, Paul prays that we might have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Even more and more knowledge. You get into eternity and say, Okay, I know everything there is to know about Christ. There's more to come. There's more. There's more. It gets better. It gets better. It keeps getting better. I can't take it anymore. There's better. I can't take it anymore. Okay. But there's more. It gets better. It gets better, it gets better, it gets better. Oh, to know Him. Actually know Him. Communing with the Lord. Don't you get excited about thinking about that? Do you know Him more today than you did two years ago? Do you know Him more today than you did yesterday? may not know about that. You hope so, right? Maybe maybe you, you, you peered into His Word already this morning and you just found something out about Him that you didn't know before. It's a knowledge of love. It's a union of love. Uh, an intimate relationship. It's a bond of love. This is, I mean, this is the pure, true kind of love. Intimate relationship. It's supernatural. It's transcendent. It goes beyond any of our thinking, this kind of relationship. And it's even mystical in the sense, I'm not trying to become mystical here. You guys know better than that. You know we're not mystical. But. In the sense, almost every doctrine finally goes over and beyond, and it's transcended in our as far as our thoughts are concerned, we can only go so far with it. Our human minds are uh, limited. you know what? something way beyond us, but that's what we have. We know him. uh Paul knew him as Lord, he saw him as Lord, he saw him as the king. He saw him as the priest. He saw him as the prophet. Oh, that's his offices, isn't it? He knew him as the prophet, the priest, and the king. And so you can say, well, how do I know Christ? Well, start off with that. He's the great prophet, isn't he? He's the fulfillment of all. He is the priest. He's interceding for us right now as, as we. What are you going to say? Are limping along with just trying to know Him and understand His Word. I'm putting it out as feebly as can be, and I'm trying to make it more stronger, but even despite that, He's interceding, and and His Holy Spirit is teaching us, you know, right? He's the prophet, He's the priest, He's the king. We can see Him that way. All these offices. And and you know what Paul says? Knowing Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, He's Savior. He's my Lord. He's my Lord. Oh about you guys? But He's my Lord. He's mine. This, this is personal possession. Paul says He's my Lord. I know about Him. I count all those losses. You know. Those are all losses. All those things I thought was gain. I spent all those years and all that education, everything that I did. It was so important to me. It was my life. Do you count anything else as part of your life? I don't even identify anything else. It's things I do here on earth It's going to burn up. It's not going to mean anything uh, unless it's invested in the kingdom. If it's invested in the kingdom, you know where that's going to go? We have a treasure that's up in heaven. We're storing up things there. And you want to do those things here for the Lord. But all those other things, really, you know. Really, what what are they? Homes, clothes, cars. All the possessions we have. Really, are they? Our family that we came from, even. Wow, you're hitting pretty hard here, Dennis. The family we're really in is in. We've been adopting the family of God. Uh, that's nice that God used us through that family and we are to honor our mother and father and brothers and sisters but Oh. Wow, Jesus said you you have to hate them. <laughs> and we that could be another sermon of so, itself, but he's saying, Don't let anything come in front of me. Right? Don't let anything. Our wealth. Non wealth. <laughs> I don't care folks people can put the name doctor up there in front. They can treasure that name. Reverend. All those things. Really means nothing. We don't have Christ. Our education that we've had. Studied hard. Well, if it's not for the glory of Christ, it really is a bunch of trash. Everything. I'm saying everything. I think all these things I put on my job application that continually do just, you know, for hours on end I'm just and it's telling my kind of my life in a, in a sense and I'm going you know that really doesn't mean much you know I would not identify with the store it's a nice job that I had I really thank the Lord for that it's the best job I ever had but you know what it, it's not me and people see me, and that's what they identify with. They see me in the store, and they think, "Oh, oh, that's that's the guy from Alpha Omega. and Omega." They may not even know my name, but they, it's the guy from Alpha and Omega. They'll come up to me. But you know what? It's not my life. I'm not tied up by that. It, it is not my life. I'm identified with Jesus Christ. I have to tell my myself sometimes. F. B. Meyer wrote this. I think this is incredible. It's a whole paragraph. You have to really pay attention. But this is really good. Not because I wrote it, but F B. Meyer, I, I think, got it right on the head. This is about knowing God. I think this I was trying to think, how can I get this across about knowing Christ? Right? And all that other stuff is just rubbish. Okay. He wrote this. We may know him personally, intimately, face to face. Christ does not live back in the centuries, nor amid the clouds of heaven. He is near us, with us, compassing our path in our lying down and acquainted with all our ways. But we cannot know Him in this mortal life except through the illumination and teaching of the Holy Spirit. And we can surely know Christ not as a stranger who turns in to visit for the night or as the exalted King of men. There must be an inner knowledge as of those whom He counts His own familiar friends, whom He trusts with His secrets, who eat with Him of His own bread. To know Christ... Now, catch This is where it's at. There's a Christian line. This is really good. To know Christ in the storm of battle... To know Him in the storm of battle. To know Him in the valley of shadow. To know Him when the solar light radiates our faces or when they are darkened with disappointment and sorrow. To know the sweetness of His dealing with bruised reeds and smoking flax delicately. To know the tenderness of His sympathy and the strength of His right hand. All this involves many varieties of experience on our part. But each of them, like the facets of a diamond, will reflect the prismatic beauty of His glory from a new angle. End of quote. Pretty well said. I couldn't have said that. That's the reason I read it. That's beautiful whether it's a valley of shadow or the solar light is just radiating on us or disappointment and sorrow or the sweetness that He has, the tenderness and the power that He has. All those things are about knowing Christ as you read the Word and then you live the Christian life. Then you bank upon the Word that you know that the Holy Spirit comes and illuminates to you that you've just learned or put into your life. And then you go through something in your life you're now able to use that and you say, this is a sovereign God. We can do this. That's knowing Christ. That's eternal life. That's a no fly Salvation begins with the knowledge of Christ for which Paul says, I'll exchange anything for that privilege. We get to verse 9. And may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith and may be found in Him. That's how deep it is. We are in Christ. You're so intertwined in the bond of the love of Christ, this intimate love, this intimate knowledge with Christ that you are in Him. You are in the ark of Christ. And uh, He uses something here that is very interesting. Um, you count all those other things as rubbish, on that's the Greek word. It's a very strong language. Uh, Paul is using here in the King James Version. I count all these things as dung. Uh, my uh, Modern translations, rubbish. Uh, it's a fitting way of translating the very expression here of the Greek word. Uh, it's the worst kind of filth. Uh, muck, excrement, uh, sewage. Uh, I can't think of any other kind of English equivalence that's polite enough to say from this pulpit this morning. And that's what Paul did when he put that there. It's a shocking language from the Apostle Paul. I think it gets a message across, doesn't it? I think it gave a jolt to all of his readers here in Philippi as he said that. Sometimes we like to clean up God's Word a little bit. But uh, you can't. It's there. It's up front. You know what it's talking about. It's plain. It's powerful. He just listed all these spiritual advantages. And here, you know, Judaism is a very biblical language or religion. He's not describing some kind of pagan, that you know, some kind of notion of righteousness of the pagans. He's talking about Judaism. John Calvin said this Paul declares that he not only abandoned everything that he formerly reckoned precious, but that it stank like excrement to him. Mm. Are you getting the picture? That's what all of that nice stuff is. Paul reached the pinnacle of that system, and it was all for naught. No more value. Old Johnson said, "As a way, it was of no more value than if you took a shovel full of cow manure and decorated it like a wedding cake, and then tried to offer it to God. It's an offense to God, no matter how good it looks to mankind. Just think of those religions, those denominations that are even practicing things that will get them there, whether it be baptism or uh, things that it's going to count. That's that's part of salvation. If you don't have that." You don't have this sacrament, uh, then you know, you, you can't go to heaven and that that stuff and, and, and that's what Paul said, that's what this is right here. <laughs> it's it's this rubbish, it's oh my. That's a stench before God. Verse nine is really the most important doctrine in all of theology. It's the most important doctrine. It sets Christianity apart from every other religion, every other kind of system. Christianity alone teaches that God supplies on our behalf all the merit that we need to please Him. He supplies it all. He is sufficient. We we supply nothing. Boy, that's radical. Look in Romans 10 and we're about ready to close this up took a few extra minutes this morning sorry about that but Romans 10 verse 3 and 4 for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own this is the the religious Jews they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God there's your two righteousnesses for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes true righteousness exists outside of us. It's not here. (coughs) Divine perfection. Not within ourselves. And we have union with Christ. This is his favorite way to describe the Christian. In Christ. That's where we're at. That we may be found in Him. That's how deep it is. You are so intertwined in this bond of knowledge with Him. Of love. What do we gain in Christ? The knowledge of Christ. Theologians call that identification. We are identified with Christ. We are seen in Him. The righteousness of Him is seen before the Father. We gain the righteousness of Christ. Theologians call that justification. We've been declared righteous. We gain the power of Christ. So I want to tell you, being a child of God is even better than being forgiven and being justified. We now are Family, we are heirs, co-heirs with Jesus Christ at the core of our being. The very core of our being is we want to know Christ passionately. Amen. Let's pray.